Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read there in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and reading verses 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 9, reading verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I always find myself scratching my head as to what to preach on at Christmas because the Christmas events are so familiar uh, to so many. Uh, and I was saying to, to Myrtle Campbell the other day that I've now been with the, with the High Three for eight Christmases. And there's maybe a, a limit to how often you can preach on Matthew chapter 1 and 2 or Luke chapters 1 and 2. And as I was giving thought to what I should preach on this Christmas, I came across an article by Kevin DeYoung entitled Pastor don't get cute this Christmas. Pastor, don't get cute this Christmas. DeYoung writes, Our people don't need us to find something new. Our people need the gospel. They need to hear about the miracle and the majesty and the mystery of the incarnation. Don't be cute. Don't be clever. Just preach Christ. And so today I'm not going to be cute. I'm not going to be clever. Instead, I want to lift up Christ from these well-known verses of Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll do so under two headings, the deliverance and then the deliverer. The deliverance and then the deliverer. First, we have the deliverance. Look at verses 1 to 5. And here Isaiah focuses on the Lord's promised deliverance. Before proceeding, it's important to remember who Isaiah was and the context in which Isaiah was prophesying. He was the son of a man named Amos. The burden of his prophetic message was concerning the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. He prophesied during the reigns of King Uzziah, King Jotham, King Ahaz and King Hezekiah over 700 years before the birth of Christ. He prophesied during a time of political upheaval. The, the northern kingdom of Syria were very much on the ascendancy and about to swallow up the northern area of Israel. It was also a time of spiritual declension and spiritual decline, where the nation of Judah had abandoned the Lord and had abandoned his word and were facing the very real and very imminent prospect of his righteous judgment. And it's into this context that we find Isaiah speaking about the prospect of restoration, the hope of deliverance. In verses 1 and 2, Isaiah speaks about the darkness being dispelled. Isaiah begins by claiming that there will be no gloom for those who are in anguish. Verse 1, he speaks here about the former times when the Lord brought contempt upon the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These were territories in the far north of the kingdom of Israel. Naphtali lay along the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Meanwhile, Zebulun was a little further southwest of Naphtali. And because they were so far north, they bore the brunt of the Assyrian aggression. 
They were the first territories to be invaded by the Assyrians, the first territories to be deported by the Assyrians, the first territories to be depopulated and then repopulated by the Assyrians. But Isaiah says here that in the latter times, the Lord will make glorious, the Lord will honour the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Gloom and anguish are not going to be the last word on those northern kingdoms, those northern territories. The Lord is going to change their circumstances. The Lord is going to honour them. And Isaiah continues by claiming that those who walk in the darkness have seen a great light. Verse 2. He speaks here about people walking in darkness, living in darkness, conducting their lives in darkness. Now, that refers to the darkness of unbelief, but it also refers to the darkness of divine judgment, the darkness of uh, despair, the darkness of despondency, the, the darkness of disorientation. And Isaiah says here that those walking in the darkness have seen a great light. In Psalm 27 that we just sung, the Lord is described as being a light to his people. In Psalm 119, we read about the Lord's word, giving light, giving revelation to his people. And here Isaiah speaks about those walking in darkness, seeing a great light. The Lord revealing himself, manifesting himself, making himself known to them. Isaiah goes further. By claiming that those dwelling in a land of deep darkness have seen a light shining on them. Verse 2 again. These people are living in a dark environment. An environment of unbelief. And an environment where they're full of despair. Full of despondency. An environment where they're feeling completely disorientated. But Isaiah says here that the light of the Lord's favour has shone on them. Now, before proceeding, it's interesting to note the tense that Isaiah uses. He speaks here about the people seeing this great light and this light shining on them. And he does so using the past tense. He speaks about these things as if they have already happened. He speaks about this as if the darkness has already been dispelled. But that is not the case. These things are still to take place. The nation of Assyria are are gathering themselves. They are just about to enter the land, just about to invade the northern kingdom. Meanwhile, Babylon will invade in another 150 to 200 years. So these events are still to take place. But they are so sure, they are so certain, that Isaiah can speak about it as if it's already in the past. As if it has already occurred. We can move from the darkness dispelled to the deliverance described in verses 3 to 5. Isaiah speaks in verse 3 about the celebration. He speaks about the Lord multiplying the nation and increasing its joy. And he speaks about the nation rejoicing before the Lord, recognizing him to be the source of their joy. He speaks about their joy being like the unrestrained joy of a great harvest being gathered in. He speaks about their joy being like the unrestrained joy when a battle has been won, the spoil divided up and dispensed among the people. It's a time of celebration. But not just a time of celebration. Also, you see in verse 4, a time of liberation. 
Here's why the people are so full of such unrestrained joy, such unbridled joy. Here's why the people are so full of celebration. Isaiah speaks here about the Lord breaking the yoke of their burdens. He speaks about the Lord breaking the staff of their oppressor. He speaks here about the Lord breaking the the rod that has been used to strike their backs. All the equipment of slavery. All the instruments being used to subdue the people, subjugate the people, reduce the people to slavery. All of these instruments, these rods, these staffs, these yokes, Isaiah says, they're going to be smashed to pieces. They're going to be reduced to splinters. The Lord is going to liberate his people. And Isaiah says here that he will liberate his people in the same way that he liberated them in the days of Gideon when he defeated the Midianites in Judges 6 and 7. Time of liberation. But not just a time of liberation. Look at verse 5. A time of pacification. Isaiah has just spoken about the Lord liberating his people so that they can rejoice. And now he makes it clear that these oppressors that the Lord is going to liberate his people from will be unable to regroup. He says that the boots of their warriors that tramped into battle, they'll be burned up. He says here that the garments that they wore into battle that were soaked in the blood of their, those they were crushing, those garments are going to be burned as fuel for the fire. It's going to be a total defeat. A total annihilation with no prospect, no possibility of these oppressors, these aggressors ever able to regroup and assemble against the people again. Now friends, as we consider these verses, we're being given a reminder that the Lord is faithful. A reminder that the Lord is faithful. That is what we see here in Isaiah 9. Isaiah speaks about deliverance being promised to the northern tribes of Israel who have been so faithless to the Lord and who are about to be completely crushed, almost annihilated by the Assyrians. And Isaiah is saying to them that the Lord will dispel the darkness. He's saying to them that the Lord is going to deliver them. Dale Ralph Davis writes... The Lord never forgets his people. Even a people beaten down. Even a people clobbered by enemies. Even a people living for the most part in their own self-chosen spiritual darkness. Dwelling in a land of deep darkness. The Lord never forgets his people. And that is so important for us to reflect on at Christmas. We have a God who refuses to let go of his people. We have a God who doesn't forget his people. We have a God who is faithful. And sometimes we need to be reminded of this. And sometimes even at Christmas we need to be reminded of this. We often hear that Christmas is the most wonderful time of year. For many people it is. But for some of us it might be a time of gloom. For some of us it might be a time of anguish. For some of us, it might be a time of darkness. Perhaps it's the darkness of an illness. An illness that we are going through and we feel that we have been driven to what same corner. Or perhaps it's the darkness of a depression, a despondency, a discouragement that that won't lift. And everybody's saying to you, come on, 
Pull yourself together. It's, it's, it's a time of joy. Good news of great joy. And you're sitting and saying, I don't feel so joyful. Perhaps it's the darkness of a personal loss. The aching void felt by the absence of loved ones who are such a large, such an integral part of our lives. And, and you're going to be looking at your Christmas table in a little while. And you're going to think, well... My dad used to be there. My grandpa used to be there. My husband, my wife used to be there. My, my child used to be there. Perhaps it's the darkness of financial uncertainty where, where you've been able to blinker everything that's going on in your work life out for the last few days, but you're thinking to yourself, how am I going to cope over the next few weeks? How am I going to cope over the next few months? What's my electric bill going to be like? What's my grocery bill going to be like come the end of January? Perhaps it's the darkness of spiritual failure. That you're sitting here today and you're thinking to yourself, I've let myself down. But not only have I let myself down, I have let my Lord and my God down. I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against earth. And into the midst of the gloom and into the midst of the darkness, we are given this glorious reminder of a God who is faithful, a God who doesn't forget his people, a God who never lets his people go. I sometimes get in trouble for mentioning my elders by name. So I'm not going to mention Donnie Rankin by name today. I'm going to pick on Robert France for a change. And, and as you know, Robert France's favourite hymn is the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And many of us are familiar with that hymn. But we might not be so familiar with the context of that hymn. The hymn was written by a man called George Matheson, who at the age of 20 began going blind. And as he went blind, his fiancée said to him, I can't be engaged to you anymore. I've got to break it off. I can't be married to a blind man. And so George Matheson was left alone. He was cared for by his sister. His sister did so much for him. And eventually he was able to pastor a congregation of 1,500 people completely blind, but with the help of his sister. But the time came when his sister fell in love and she was engaged to be married and Eventually, she, uh, the family were all together the, the night before the wedding. And when they were together that night, George was left alone in the manse. He didn't want to go to this kind of celebration. He felt that the one person who was there for him, the one person who had supported him, the one person who had come through for him again and again, that one person wasn't there for him anymore. And in that gloom and in that darkness, he composed the hymn, O oh, love that wilt not let me go. O oh, love that wilt not let me go. This morning, this Christmas, I want to encourage you by drawing your attention to the God who is faithful. Drawing your attention to the God whose love will not let go of his people. Drawing your attention to the God who is faithful. Whatever you are going through today, friend, or whatever you might be going through tomorrow, and you've been able to just put it to the back of your mind for Christmas, but you're thinking, how am I going to cope tomorrow? Whatever you are going through, whatever you are facing, whatever you are experiencing, friend, there is a God who is faithful. There is a God who will not let you go. And, and even today, 
Even if you're going to be sitting alone, having Christmas dinner by yourself, you are not ultimately alone. Because there is a God who doesn't let his people go. Well, this brings us second to the deliverer. Look at verses 6 and 7. Here Isaiah focuses on the Lord's promised deliverer. The Lord's promised deliverer. Verses 6 and 7, Isaiah gives a description of that deliverer. Up to this point, Isaiah has spoken about what the Lord will do. He has spoken about the Lord delivering his people. And now Isaiah speaks about the one through whom the Lord will deliver his people. We see that in verse 6. Isaiah starts by saying, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Isaiah is making the point that the things that he has spoken about in verses 1 to 5, this great deliverance is going to come about because a child will be born. The Lord's answer to everything that has troubled his people, victimized his people, brutalized his people, oppressed his people, the Lord's answer to everything that has left his people in a very dark place, a very low place, is the birth of a child, the giving of a son, an appointed deliverer. And Isaiah says here that the government will be on his shoulders. This child will be no ordinary child. He will be a king, he will be a ruler, he will be a sovereign. And Isaiah goes on to tell us the names of this child. Look at verse 6. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor. Isaiah often speaks about the limitations of human wisdom. The limitations of human counsel. But this child, this king, will possess wisdom, counsel that can only be described as wonderful. He will know what to say and what to do on every occasion for every person. He will be called Mighty God. Throughout the Old Testament, the Lord is referred to as Mighty God. And now this child, this king, is called Mighty God. He will be one who is strong, one who is powerful, one who can deliver his people, one who can defend his people, one who can defeat the enemies of his people. He'll be called Everlasting Father. That term father indicates that this child, this king, will have a care for his people, a concern for his people, a compassion for his people. And it's a care, a concern, a compassion that is everlasting. It goes on forever and ever. And then he will be called Prince of Peace. That word peace carries the idea of wholeness and well-being. It's about an end to hostility, an end to warfare. And this child, this king, will be called Prince of Peace. He will establish peace between men and men, but also and ultimately peace between God and man. And having drawn our attention to the names of this child, this king, Isaiah draws our attention to the rule of this child, the rule of this king. Look at verse 7. He starts by saying that the increase of his government and of peace will have no end. This king's government, this king's reign, the scope of his kingdom will only increase. It will only expand. It might start off small. It might seem to have no substance, no significance, but it will grow and grow and grow. There will be no end to its growth. Isaiah continues by saying that this king will establish and uphold 
the, king, the throne and kingdom of David. Second Samuel 7, the Lord promises David that he will establish the throne of one of his descendants. And here we find this child, this king, being spoken of as that descendant of David. He will sit on David's throne. He will establish and uphold David's kingdom as David's descendant. And Isaiah concludes by saying that this king will reign with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's what characterizes his reign. Justice. Righteousness. There won't be any allegations of sleaze, allegations of spin, allegations of scandal when it comes to his reign. There won't be any accusations of conspiracy, accusations of compromise, accusations of cover-ups when it comes to his rule. When people look at his reign, when they look at his rule, they will say, there's a reign, there's a rule that is characterized by justice and righteousness. And that will continue forever and ever, Isaiah says. You know, so often we hear about people who become corrupted by power. When I was in fifth year at school, we spent about a year studying Shakespeare's Macbeth. I mean, imagine that, a whole year studying Shakespeare's Macbeth. I used to be able to quote Macbeth by memory. You know, you just spend all that time in this, in this play. And I still enjoy watching uh, dramatizations of it. And it's a fascinating play because you've got this character, Macbeth, who starts off as quite a good guy. And then the, the seed is sown into his head that, that he could possibly become king. And he is just gripped by this insatiable desire to become king. So he murders King Duncan to, uh, to achieve that throne. But he's not content to just attain the throne. He becomes increasingly corrupted in his desire to maintain and hold on to that throne. So that he ends up murdering a number of other characters in the play. He's on this downward spiral. He's full of compromise. Full of corruption. But here Isaiah says that despite this king's increasing power, increasing reign, increasing control, his reign will always be characterized by justice. Righteousness. Always above reproach. And at the end of verse 7, we move from the description to the determination. Isaiah has just spoken about a coming deliverance. And the deliverer through whom this deliverance will come. But remember friends, Isaiah is addressing a people living in gloom. A people living in anguish. A people living in darkness. Isaiah is addressing a people who are being told the Assyrians are going to come and crush you. And after the Assyrians have made mincemeat out of you, the Babylonians are going to come. And so the people are hearing promises of deliverance and they're thinking to themselves, well, that doesn't sound probable. In fact, it doesn't even sound possible. And so Isaiah rounds things off by saying, Luke verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah is saying that what he has been announcing isn't simply credible, it is certain. And it's credible, it is certain, because the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of heaven, has a zeal, a burning passion, a holy jealousy 
to do this. The Lord is going to concentrate all of his efforts, all of his energies into accomplishing those marvellous promises. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being given a picture of the Lord's promised deliverer. A picture of the Lord's promised deliverer. That's what we see in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah claims that this, cha- this deliverer will start out as a child being born and a son being given. Isaiah continues by saying that the names of this child will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Isaiah goes further by saying that there will be no, in- no end to the increase of his government, that he will establish and uphold the throne and kingdom of David, and that his reign will be characterized by justice and righteousness. This deliverer will be a great king. But he will be more than a great king. He will be a divine king. He will be one who possesses all that is needed to deliver his people, all that is needed to secure their salvation. And friends, that is so important for us to reflect on at Christmas. The Old Testament writer John Oswald writes, This person will not be a king among kings in Israel. Rather, he will be the final king. He will be the king to end all kings. Thus the prophet Isaiah envisions the ideal Davidic monarch. And what we see in the New Testament is that these verses from Isaiah find their fulfillment in none other than Jesus of Nazareth. In Matthew chapter 4, we read, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested... He withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them has the light dawned. Jesus is the child who was born to Mary. And the son given by his father to his people. Jesus is the wonderful counsellor. Who knows exactly what to say and what not to say to his people on every occasion. Jesus is the mighty God. Who can defeat all his enemies. Sin, death, the devil. And deliver and defend each of his people. Jesus is the everlasting Father who loves his people with an invincible, indescribable, inexhaustible care and concern, a love that would lead him to lay down his life for them. Jesus is the Prince of Peace who has ended the hostilities between God and man through his sin-atoning, sin-reconciling death on the cross. Jesus is the one whose government is increasing and expanding. It's not waning. It's not contracting. No matter what Nicola Sturgeon and her cronies are doing in Hollywood or any of these other places of power, the kingdom of Jesus is increasing and expanding. It's been added to even today. 
Jesus is the one who has established the throne and the kingdom of David as the true son of David. That's what the angels said to Mary. And do you remember what the angels said to the shepherds? That he has been born in the city of David. And Jesus is the one whose reign is characterised by justice and righteousness. No sleaze with Jesus. No scandal with Jesus. No cover-ups with Jesus. No compromise with Jesus. He is the one who does all things well. And his reign brings blessing to his people. We have a new king this year, King Charles. And we hope that he will be a good king. We pray for his reign. But at the end of the day, only Jesus will have a reign that ultimately brings true blessing to his people. There's a very famous sermon preached by an African-American preacher, S.M. Lockridge, where Lockridge said to the congregation, The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He is the king of Israel. He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of the ages. He is the king of heaven. He is the king of glory. He is the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. That's my king. He is God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He is unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature, the highest personality in philosophy, the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He is the only one qualified to be the all-sufficient savior. He is indescribable. He is incomprehensible. He is invincible. He is irresistible. You cannot outlive him. You cannot live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him but couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. The grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. If you ever watch the video of it, you have the whole congregation saying, Amen. And if we were like that congregation, I hope we would say the same. Amen. That's my king. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, friends. The truth of the child lying in the manger is none other than the long-promised, long-awaited, long-anticipated, heaven-appointed king of kings. And so this morning, this Christmas, I want to close by drawing our attention to this king. Drawing our attention to this Jesus and asking every person, the younger ones, the students, those who are still at work and those who are retired, I want to ask you the question, have you bowed the knee to this king? Have you bowed the knee to this Jesus? And will he be the one who gives you reason to hope in the moments when you might find yourself facing and going through the valleys of darkness? I know that there are a lot in our congregation right now who are going through very dark valleys. I know that because I'm going to these funerals and I'm visiting these homes and I'm hearing these text messages. I know that there are so many of this congregation going through dark valleys. But friends, even in the valley, let's look up and look to this King. Look to this Jesus. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you and bless you that you are the God who is faithful. That you are the God who doesn't forget and doesn't abandon his people. 
We thank you that you didn't abandon, abandon these kingdoms of Israel and Judah, leave them to their own devices. You're, you didn't leave them ultimately in the grip of Assyria and Babylon, that you're the God who promised them a deliverance and that that deliverer came in Christ. We thank you and bless you that you are so faithful. And we pray that each and every one of us here today would know that faithfulness, would know that whatever we are facing, you will not let us go. We pray that you might give us the grace to lift up our eyes and to look to this deliverer, that you would give us the grace to look up and look and see Jesus, the one who is the wonderful counsellor, the one who is the mighty God, the one who is the everlasting Father, the one who is the Prince of Peace. Whether we are finding ourselves in a time of joy and gladness today or maybe some going through dark and difficult places and valleys, Let us lift up our eyes, O Lord, we pray, and see this Jesus, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.